Hi guys, welcome back to Karen Combos. Today I'm with a very special guest, Guy Ramsey. Guy Ramsey is actually my Chinese translation teacher and yeah, we just wrapped up our first semester. It's true. Yeah, so Guy, I think it's very interesting and one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on as a podcast guest is because you're Aussie, right? Like essentially a white guy. Mm. Is that racist to say? No. Okay, cool. I think a lot of people, you know, call that out. Yeah, so essentially an Australian who can speak really good Chinese and so good to the extent that he can teach translation. And as like an ABC, his Chinese is actually a lot better than mine. So yeah, I'm really interested in your story and how you came to um, teach translation. And so when I was scrolling through the website, I found that you first started off as veterinary honors. How did you make the transition and perhaps why the transition? Yeah, it's a big transition, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but that was straight out of school, so straight from high school. I um, thought I'd, I've always, always been interested in the medical side of things, but also language. I studied German at school. Oh. There was no Chinese at, in those days. This is the 1970s. Oh, okay. Fair <clears throat> enough. So in the, <clears throat> in the 1970s, language-wise, your only choice was French and German. Oh. So um, I... Um, had that interest of language, but at that time, you know, French and German doesn't take you very far. Well, that's how we thought in the yeah. 70s. <laughs> so to be more practical, followed the medical interest, veterinary science, which I certainly enjoyed doing. And um, um, having finished it, I did work for, for a year. Oh, okay. Mm, but during that year, China at the same time, because I finished high school at the end of the 70s, that's when China opened up to the outside oh. world. So before then, during my high school years, the period that, that was the period of Chairman Mao's rule of China, it was closed. So we knew about China, but we couldn't actually go there. So all of a sudden, China was opened. I was, you know, <laughs> still young and so intrigued by that. So I went and visited China with some friends and really enjoyed it. So when I came back, I started learning Chinese um, just as for a bit of fun and you know things in life snowball and before I knew it I was um, doing a um, full degree in Chinese and um, that undergraduate degree and then moving into um, PhD honours study in Chinese and then PhD study in Chinese and so yeah it's a blink of the eye and all of a sudden I'm a Chinese language academic <laughs> than a veterinary scientist. And, um, but during my, that time of study of Chinese, from undergraduate through honours into PhD, I was always, um, I was regularly travelling back to China because I developed friendships there and, oh, yeah. and actually roots with, with, with the family there in the countryside. So it's sort of, it wasn't just uh, going back to China because it was sort of a fun place to look at. <laughs> I actually, at a very young age, developed quite um, strong um, roots there that yeah. I maintain today. So, yeah, so it'd be a combination of historical chance, China opening up yeah. uh, at a time when um, I was still young, um, having that interest in language through high school. Um, and um, when I'm being in China, especially at that early stage, it was very easy to do. People really, 
the Chinese people when I was traveling there, people really were intrigued by you and, <laughs> and, and took you Get in. Photographs. Yeah. And not just that, but they took you into their homes. So, oh, really? So that made it um, very easy to develop a strong connection with people there. Mm. Oh. Well, probably today it's more yeah. like just traveling to any country. Of course, you meet people there, but you tend not to get taken into their homes yeah, and things. Yeah, mm. oh. um, So that's basically the, the, the reason for the transition. It seems a big transition, not to me, but to outsiders from the yeah. veterinary science to language studies. Yeah. Um, ah. But as we'll probably talk about later, it all ended up um, coming, working well together when it oh. came to my research area which we'll probably talk about later. Yeah, definitely, mm. definitely. And I mm. just wanted to go back to the timeline. So mm. you were doing veterinary science where you, you completed your degree and then you went for your trip to China or was this during your degree? Because it's like a four years degree. Yeah, so I had what, um, completed the degree and working for the first year. Oh, yeah. Mm. So I was already working, practicing, working as a, <laughs> as a vet. Yeah, local vet, you know, like it's yeah. your local, um, local vet surgeon, yeah. yeah. So dealing with dogs and cats and uh, myself and another veterinary friend yeah. um, went to China. What prompted the trip? It sounds completely random, like you're telling it's, your parents, bye, I'm heading to China. Yeah, They're like, it, why? Again, it's just the historical circumstance of China being closed and then all of a sudden opening up in the late 70s, early 80s. So if it hadn't been, if China was still closed, of course I wouldn't have gone there. Yeah. And I wouldn't have developed the interest because I wouldn't yeah. have gone there. And um, if China had, well, like, I, I, I didn't travel to any other countries, like yeah. Japan yeah. or, <laughs> or um, Indonesia, countries that were always open because there wasn't that intrigue. But it was a big deal at the time when China opened up. Yeah. Um, it's, I, at the time, it's, it's made sense to be interested in China opening up. But probably nowadays, younger people, yeah, you don't realise what a big deal it was. This is a country yeah. that was fully closed, totally closed, and then all of a sudden... Yeah, that's crazy. It's like it, another it was, country popped up. It wasn't just sort of slightly open door, it was full-on open door. Yeah. Mm. yeah, but good on you. Like, I commend your bravery. Like, not everyone would jump at the opportunity, I guess. Yeah, that's, so, that's youthful. Young and adventurous. That's <laughs> I wouldn't do it now, no. <laughs> Too much to risk. Mm, but... Yeah, that goes back to youth, especially when you'd already had a, developed a profession and was yeah. working in it, to, to use when that experience to change. But when you're young, I think you'll find most of you, if you're still in your 20s, that yeah. you really might not realise it now, but you do actually have some time to renegotiate yourselves professionally oh, until, you, until you hit 30. By 30, I recommend you really should know this is going to be my life career. Which of course I had done. Yeah. But um, don't fret if you're in your twenties and you're still <laughs> good advice. positioning yourselves lost. professionally, be because there's no rush at in your twenties to do it. Yeah. Nowadays and there might have been in the past, but nowadays yeah. I think you've got plenty of opportunities to to. Sounds good to hear. To, A lot of people even to shift. You know, trans like have three different careers or yeah. yeah the world is just. And especially because we're in COVID times where... Uncertainty. Yeah, I was watching a show yesterday where a woman, a young woman, 
probably your age. Well, oh, no, a bit, no, a bit older than you. <laughs> anyway, she had, she had always wanted to be a flight attendant and she'd gone through the training as a flight attendant yeah. and then she lost her job because oh. of COVID. Yeah. But she, so she reinvented herself in a new profession which she's really happy with now. So, because she, she's still in her 20s, I think it was, wasn't such a, a big trauma as it would be for somewhere in their 30s. So what I'm saying is that COVID also adds that extra sort of yeah. uncertainty that you shouldn't be frightened by because at the, when you're young you, it, it actually is pretty straightforward to change yourself into this totally new profession and not um, feel that you're behind other people who chose that profession from the very beginning yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting yeah what you reminded of like I remember when COVID was hitting my dad he would remind me of that Chinese phrase Wei right? Mm, right. It's like mm. it means it's the Chinese word for crisis, but like the actual two characters mean dangerous opportunity. That's right. That opportunity. Yeah, it's an old um, it's a it's a saying, but with real meaning. Yeah, in every yeah. crisis, there's an opportunity. Yeah. And it truly is. Yeah, and I love how like Chinese has that sort of like that depth to it, and then when you see the character, it also has like a hidden kind of meaning. Yeah, so if we jump to language-wise, why is it something can really attract people like myself? Because I moved from quite good fluency in German, but where the language it just sort of parallels English and the script parallels English, over to Chinese, where it was just a totally new way of, of communicating. And yeah. the script, of course, having this whole embedded meaning that you could track back to, through centuries. Which, yeah, which um, you, you didn't get through the study of German because it's, it was more... Too similar, right? That's right. And so most of the time you're sort of thinking about the similarities between the two languages when you're acquiring it, while Chinese is a whole different thing. You're really the starting point. It won't help you if you think about the similarities between the two languages. It means you really need to understand, like I tried to teach you <laughs> when you're translating, is the, uh, how ideas are structured in Chinese so that you and you read a Chinese sentence you know what's important and then you can then shift that idea and map it onto a, an English way of talking about things. Yeah, yeah, definitely we will touch on that. But I also want to go back to that, you know, that first trip, like how long was oh. this trip and do you have any particular memories? Like what was your, because I would love to sort of imagine what it would be like to see China through your eyes because it must have been so foreign and so exotic and everyone just speaking a different language and everything is just so different. Yeah, I guess so. It's uh, Yeah, so how long was the trip firstly? Oh, a few weeks. Oh, okay. Yeah, we went for a few weeks. I think um, when, you first when you're young, it's it's nothing, you, you don't think that, in that much depth about what's going on, <laughs> just sort of enjoy the experience. But in, because that's a long time ago, what's that, about 40 years ago, so that's a long time ago. But um, what stuck out in my mind, let me think, of course the bicycle, just the whole way of getting around, because everyone rode bicycles Bicycle. back then, yeah. there, was very, there were very few cars wherever you went. Um, being marked, lit, uh, for someone like you, well possibly not nowadays, but for me it was the first time I was marked out. Oh, you stood as, out. As, 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 yeah, and, and attracted people's with continuous attention when oh, I was out in the street. Oh, that must so interesting. While, um, of course, if you were Chinese back in the 70s, yeah. you might have had the same experience. 
you know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not, because Chinese have been around Australia for a long time, but still you, at some stages, you're marked out just yeah. by your looks. Yeah. So that was probably the first time I became aware, oh, I'm marked out by my looks. And of course, for in being um, white in that time, in China was a big advantage. So yeah, it's, definitely. It's it, so much more impressive mm. if Guy learns Chinese than me as an ABC. So it was being marked out, but with vantage, you, you could call it white privilege. Yeah, know? yeah. So there was that. I remember um, that feeling, which you, yeah. of course you'd have never had in Australia. Um, I think that's the, you know, the. the the rest really is marked just by the similarities. You know, I had never been there, and but when you get there, you know, people are living your lives like here. You know, people go to work, yeah. and they eat. You know, yeah, and they go to little cafes and little things like that. So um, they get the bus, they get the train. Yeah. So another thing marked me: well, this 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 country that had been set up as as so foreign yeah. when I was young, because it's a totalitarian. Yeah. Um, communist dictatorship compared to the, yeah. the liberal democracy I grew up in and of course a different, whole different cultural um, experience this with Chinese as opposed to predominantly European in Australia back then that when you actually go there the, the day to day lives despite everything being the antithesis of what you grew up with is very you know very similar hence you can easily later on I very easily just um, um, developed roots there because you know you, once you had linguistic skills yeah. you realize day-to-day -day life wasn't so different to day-to-day -day life here I guess um, back in the 70s it was normal to have like three generations living together uh, here yeah, yeah, the grandma, the mom, yeah. The so and I come from a big family so and then to go to China and the same thing so yeah. it, oh. at that stage it was very similar you know Although it's a big deal in Chinese culture, you know, multiple yeah. generations. It's not a big deal in Western culture, but in the 70s, that's just how we lived, even though we didn't sort of um, um, play it up. We didn't, yeah. didn't it wasn't a, a cultural, um, something of cultural value uh, in, this, in, in our own lives. Um, so yeah, it was pretty easy to adapt to that, living in China because it was yeah, I'm so surprised, similar to yeah. grow up what I grew up with and you know yeah it's like a second home from home yeah many people in one household and <laughs> you know the responsibilities of the grandmother and to yeah. etc um, yeah. and how did you get around like not knowing the language and back then like you know oh the first time yeah really hard yeah really hard so I strongly recommend you have some Chinese <laughs> basic Chinese um, Ability before you go to China. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, even nowadays, it just—it's so much more helpful. Yeah. Um, did you get lost a lot? How did you book? How did you book? A, like you know, book places to stay at. Yeah, that part was easy because oh. it's—it was because it, the strict control in communist society. Mm. Everywhere you, you, you had allotted places where you could oh. stay. Oh, okay, that's perfect. And again, talking about privilege there were um, special ticket offices where you would buy tickets, for example, to get on for the train and that. Oh, okay. So you didn't have to line up with the masses. Yeah. So you went to this privileged booth. Oh, that privilege. Which doesn't have the long line. Yeah, you were like uh, a superstar when you went. 
well not a superstar but <laughs> it was certainly someone of privilege so the uh, it wasn't that hard to buy tickets because oh, there was okay. a setup for you and it wasn't hard to find accommodation because they were set up in they were set up in fact restricted to certain spaces and even though they were just old dorms you know yeah. they were still for foreigners only so you, and at the first trip you couldn't stay with um, yeah, Chinese but that changed very quickly and once I had some language skills then of course I would just stay with locals mm. yeah. but the first trip was very limited to where you could go and where you could stay yeah, taking like a risk well taken care of in a sense. Yeah, you didn't have to plan beforehand, you could just turn up anywhere. Um, oh, but that's so cool. I when you I turned up in a city or a small town, you couldn't just stay anywhere. You yeah. had to sort of ask around where can the foreigners stay, you know. Yeah, I guess that's the pros and cons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then how did you come back from this trip and then almost decide with so much certainty that you want to do this? Like even now, I can never, yeah, never quite like know for certain or. Um, it was the language thing because as soon as I came back I wanted to learn some language having <laughs> gone there I thought what an intriguing place yeah. but of course the language barrier yeah. so it wasn't me by, by myself another friend also wanted to learn Chinese oh, at the same time perfect. so again thinking I'm still very young yeah. so we both learned it together and oh. um, um, and just out of fun you know yeah. but um, um, for me, it became more than fun. It became something I became really fascinated with, yeah. learning the, the language. Probably because I had the, the interest in language originally, um, while the friend um, didn't continue on with it because it was simply just a, a, some sort of amusement at the time, you know, yeah. pick up a little Chinese, little bit of Chinese, etc., etc. Yeah. So when you were studying it, you didn't necessarily have the goal in mind that you wanted to work in this field, or was it like, hey, I'm just going to get an extra language for? You know, veterinary science, good combo, or... Yeah, so yeah, initially it was like my friend, just doing it for a bit of fun, yeah. Learn another language, you yeah. know. Yeah. And um, probably after two years, yeah, that's when, when I uh, started going, spending a lot of time in China. After two years, it became something I really... I guess it's not only did I... Was I really interested in it? I actually was pretty good at it, too. Yeah, oh! So that's a big difference too, isn't it? You know, if yeah. you find something, do something new and you're not so good at it, then you know, it's interesting to try it, isn't it? Yeah. But then you go and try something else. But if yeah. you try something new and you're really good at it, it's hard to give it up, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's not that I'm special, it's just probably again because I had that language learning um, awareness yeah. from learning German and enjoying German, yeah. learning German. So there's a language awareness thing that, um, that made me probably quite good at learning Chinese and because there's always a brain something going on in my brain yeah. you know some people can pick up tones and others can't, can never pick up tones yeah. you know? so it's obviously there's a wide the brain's wired for a tonal language yeah ah. and what was your experience learning Chinese so was it was it quite easy to pick up or was it something that you had to slowly immerse yourself in and, and um. start To be honest, I I found it no 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 harder than learning German. Oh, wow! You People know, often find the characters completely confusing. Yeah. The tone. I mean, the two 
there's really two main things in there that are just don't exist in, in, in most other languages. One's the tones and one's the script. Yeah. The non-phonetic scripts, basically non-phonetic scripts. The tones I've never had a problem with and it's just, I think that's brain wiring. Oh. You know, some people can yeah. sing, some can't. Some people can hear music, some yeah. can't. I think that's, um, I was just lucky. Yeah. That you I can, are lucky. That I can hear tones, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because like my friend who started at the same time and others who I studied with at the same time, um, you know, never, a lot of them never quite mastered tones. I even see that with some students here. Yeah. That it's, it's, it must be just the whole way your brain is wired. So the tones, if, um, I think, in, my guess is if you're sort of inter in, interested in music or you can pay attention to music when you hear it, then if you pay attention to tones, it's the same thing. Pay real attention to music when you hear yeah. it. And, um, so the tones wasn't a big problem at all. And the script is, um, yeah, it's sort of annoying. Because it's, <laughs> it's got so nothing. So Because it's, 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 there's no relationship with the spoken language. So yeah. it's just rote learning. So I guess if you're not good at rote learning, then you're not going to do very well with the script. Because the only way to learn it is just to sit down and, 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 and practice, 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 practice writing the script. Because you, you, as you know, you can't. Just because you can speak a word doesn't mean you can write it. Yeah, you actually have to see the words. Mm. So, there's the two qualities, basically. Being able to hear music, I think, that made it easier for me. And not being annoyed by yeah. hours of just <laughs> writing a character a hundred times, you know. Yeah. Until you, you, you knew how to write it. Yeah, oh, and that's cool. And then later, after your bachelor's, Chinese you went on to do a PhD mm. yeah and what was um, I guess that experience on and what was your topic and how did you find your niche yeah so not surprisingly after what I've just said the topic was about the language itself and how it differs from English oh, that's yeah. very broadly yeah so it was that's called contrastive so it was the study I did was contrasted between English and Chinese, obviously because it, it, I could... Um, Differentiate and I, you had experience. That's my life experience, yeah, <laughs> the, the new language, making sense of the new language while having English as my mother tongue. But that, that's not enough to write a PhD, so um, with help from my supervisor um, to develop a real concrete topic, this is, it was... Um, I'm not sure why we picked that area, but it was media. Yeah. So, and the media reports coming out of China um, and comparing those with media reports on a similar topic mm -hmm. coming out of Australia. So it was narrowed down to the genre, the type of text, the genre of media reports, mm -hmm. newspaper reports, and how at the time they differed, oh. even though they're talking about the same events, the same thing, how they yeah. differed between being um, spoken about uh, in the context of mainland China as opposed to an issue spoken about being reported on in Australia and, and, and um, Would you uh, be able to talking about why, that, why those differences occurred, may occur, you know. Yeah. Would you be able to give me one quick example? Uh, the, 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 well, the main differences, well, there's, of course, there's a lot of different, yeah. well, the differences are, to keep, try and keep it simple. Remember yeah. we're coming from a language perspective, yeah. not, the, not the 
political context of, of where the, the news reports were written. We were focusing just on the language. So one key area, of course, was um, um, the types of uh, uh, phenomena, political phenomena they were talking about, for example, in mainland China, which had a totally different political system, didn't uh, really have an equivalent in oh, the West. Oh, you can't really translate. No, well, even we, you see that in the course today when we're translating, you know, that there's these political jargons, these expressions yeah. that make real sense in the context of mainland China. You know, remember we were at class, we were talking about things like um, 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 Shi Wu or something, you know, the 11th five-year plan. Yeah. You know? yeah. And um, um, all those types of expressions that don't make sense immediately when they're spoke when they're in the Australian English context. So there's that sums up in words the sort of expressions, the issues of expressions. So oh, yeah. simple terminology that you need to use, but it doesn't actually make necessarily make sense in the English reporting. So there's a lot of discussion of that issue and what to do and why this might be the case. But it really got down to culture and politics that the culture and politics often are just so different that it's, it's, it's sometimes impossible to use an expression yeah. that is, makes sense in, in China to use it in the Australian context. The other is, the second thing was focusing on discourse, which just means how ideas are presented in the text. So how that, for example, um, a classic example in Chinese I always give is if you traditionally, if you come to make a request in Australia, in English, you'll say, you know, I want this, yeah. and then why you want it, you know? Yeah. I want time off from work, yeah. it's because... Dot, 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 dot. Well, in Chinese, usually it's the opposite. You have to give the cause, the reasons first, and then at the very last, um, announce your request. So, you know, because um, I want to do all these things and have to visit so-and-so, therefore, uh -huh. can I have time off? Interesting. You have to sort of explain yourself before you can ask. Yeah. So the the the, the um, traditional way of making a request in straight English is um, request and then because request because so and so. While in Chinese, it's um, um, because therefore. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So because shima, 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 then therefore yeah. I want this. So those sorts of um, different ways of talk of of presenting ideas, um, even manifested in the text I was trans oh, was analyzed. Cool. So I pointed out how that that traditional way of presenting ideas impacted even on the news reporting across the two Ooh. countries. And that brings me to the next point. So, what kind of skill set do you think it takes to succeed in Chinese translation? It sounds like you need a lot of attention to detail. Yeah, I think. I think as you've realised, you need to understand. It's kind of boring, but it's necessary. You need yeah. to understand the fundamental grammar of Chinese yeah. and the fundamental grammar of English. So, why from Chinese? Because if you don't know what the reason for the presentation of a character yeah. 
yeah. in, in a Chinese sentence. In other words, what a character in a Chinese sense, what it's doing there, yeah. you understand its meaning, but if you don't know grammatically what it's doing like there, that's right. By grammar, I mean things like, as you just said, yeah. subject, verb, object, um, is something part of a, the main clause, the main idea, or is it just a sort of little bit of extra idea? Mm. Like the because, shama shama, that yeah. the because, what comes after the because is less important than the main request. So, if you can't understand how that plays out in Chinese, it's very hard then to um, replicated in English yeah. using um, um, what English offers grammatically, which is a lot more complex. Yeah. English grammar is extremely more complex <laughs> than Chinese grammar. Oh, oh, really? That said, so that's the Chinese side, but of course you also need to know English grammar, yeah. as you know, <laughs> because we speak English but we don't know the grammar of it. Yeah. Mm. yeah. But if to, how can you know the, the equivalence across from the Chinese grammar to the English grammar if you don't know English grammar. So grammar is a really important starting point that most of us lack. Yeah. So I think that's something you really have to resign yourself to. If you're just learning Chinese to speak, you don't need to focus yeah, on you grammar. Don't need to, you just you sort don't. Of it. No, you don't need to focus on grammar. You can just, it becomes intuitive. Yeah. So when I'm speaking, I'm not thinking of grammar. It just, in Chinese, it just comes out. But if you're doing translation at that detail, you have at that. Yeah. So once you move into translation, you really need to think, um, you really need to have that yeah. grammatical understanding as a scaffold to be successful moving from language across to another language. So yeah. I think I really need a good understanding of grammar, what's going on grammatically in the two languages. Once you've got that, in my mind, it's yeah. actually quite simple because all that's left then are word meanings and word choices with which you just yeah. know if you've had a lot of experience with the language, it's just intuitive. Yeah. If you haven't had much experience with the language, then it's almost impossible to be an effective translator because you don't know the nuances, the use of words in certain situations. But most of us come to it with that already. So, for example, your level of English and Chinese is certainly high enough for translation. Oh, really? That's good to know. Yeah. I guess my grammar is quite terrible. <laughs> so, the, um, really, I think the only um, um, stumbling point would be that, that fundamental understanding of what's going on grammatically in these two yeah. languages. Um, for me, Chinese, I learned it from the beginning of the grammar, so that wasn't a problem. But English, I had to go retrospective, yeah, kind of, yeah, which is what you're doing. Yeah. You have to go retrospectively, go retrospectively learn what's going on with the grammar of English. Because in the 70s, they didn't teach us grammar. Yeah, and you mm. just, yeah, you just, yeah, you just internalize it. Mm. And, yeah. mm, internalize it. So you have to move from having it internalized to having it actually operationalized, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I think one of the most frustrating things for translation for me, I think, is that. Um, I feel like, you know, if you, if you try, like, you can spend, like, one hour, two hours just picking out the perfect word, but I feel like when you publish it, no one really appreciates it until you screw it up, essentially. Yeah. Right? So it feels like sometimes, should I just move on and find a better word? Or, like, you know, should I just continue? Or should I stay and find that better word? Yeah, it's 
especially, especially with the Tui translation, isn't it? Yeah. Because you're yeah. so wanting to impress the reader. Yeah, they, they won't even notice it. Yeah, <laughs> and they won't even know, which is this, that's the mark of success, is when they don't notice yes. it. Yes, yeah. Well, if it's a scientific translation or a newspaper translation, you, you, you face the same problem, but you can probably just less, yeah. you can probably spend less time fretting about your word choice yeah. because it's not going to really impact on what the function of the text is, just to give information. Well, literary text, you got to, you want yeah. to create. Um, and it's always just for you. An emotional response. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And then mm. on to the next part, I heard that you specialise in mental health mm. and how did you choose that specialty and what does it mean to you? Yeah, I just again fell into it, just like I fell into Chinese language, fell into that aspect. But just like with Chinese language, in reality, you can track it back to my interest in language, which initially was German. Ooh, I think yeah. the mental health aspect, again, you can probably track back to my interest in medicine from the start. Oh, having, that's where it comes together. Having done veterinary medicine, yeah. So just not the veterinary side of veterinary medicine, but the medicine side, being interested yeah. in medical things. So. Um, living in China early on, one thing you asked uh, uh, the first trip I didn't notice, but once I was living in China, the differences you notice there's just so many. Yeah. yeah when you really go and live in in, in, in um, with families and that in China, yes, there are clear so many differences between life here, and you have the language to um, to question what's going on. But one thing I noticed is the that the large, despite it being a communist society, the large number of what appeared to be homeless people, oh, especially okay. out in the countryside, and those homeless people very quickly be realised were all mentally ill people, oh. and very it became clear very quickly that um, they had been unproblematically at that time just abandoned on the street oh. by their families, as 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 a as I said, as an unproblematic thing to do. So a culturally condoned thing to do was to abandon these problematic yeah. family members to the, to the streets and just let them um, yeah. um, deal, you know, uh, they had big whatever, just... Yeah. Um, and this is like for mentally, like, I guess, ill and like physically, like... Yeah, I only... Yeah, I haven't done any work on with physical disability. Yeah but with only on mental disability, on mental illness, yeah. which is all I can talk about really. Yeah. So, and, because um, again, physical disability, you're limited on what you can do with movement-wise. Yeah. So you would be in the family, but you could be kept inside the family because you can't, yeah. not, can't, you're not mobile. While people with mental illness are quite, it, it, uh, uh, purely mental illness, yeah. of course, are, are, are totally mobile. Yeah. And, if they're not getting treated, they can be really troublesome in the home, and oh. and 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 can also, obviously, they're mobile. They can leave the home. So in that's that time it was it was common to for these people to be in the street, and they're very visible in oh. their psychosis in yeah. the street. So and every year I'd go back to the same place and think, oh, that person's still there, and then they would oh. suddenly disappear, and I think, oh, I wonder where the local person who used to live on yeah. the street where they've gone and you know my family would tell me oh what happened to them whatever oh. so this is something I you didn't really grow up with in um, in my own life in my local suburb yeah. you know so um, 
that struck a chord. And then as you get older, you don't notice it so well. In my case, you didn't notice it when you were very young, but as you got older, you, you started to realize, oh, well, the friends and things and starting stuff, starting to experience some um, mental, mental health issues. And it became clearer that, um, oh, this is actually an issue that's hadn't impacted on me, my life until then. And actually, yeah. it's um, became very evident to me in China because it's just so visible. Yeah. But actually, it's also, you know, through the 80s and 90s, became more of a topic yeah. in in Australia as well. So it became I became more aware of it in Australia. Hence, um, it, I, so I had an interest in it. And then uh, PhD involved, um, sorry, post-PhD, as a, a, an academic, you have to develop uh, expertise in an area. Yeah. So uh, the area I fell into was simply the mental illness side, which there had been very, very, very little work done in China, simply because it was a closed society until yeah. the um, early 80s. So before that, it was just like, like the experience I described living in the countryside where there were simply people with severe mental illness were just discarded yeah. into the street. And so there was, um, uh, from the early 80s onwards, China was just starting a whole, what the West started back in the 40s and 50s oh, with yeah, respect to dealing with people with a mental illness. Um, more modern way of thinking about it, China was just starting then. So that means there's little work done, and as an academic, you need to find research topic that hasn't been explored. Yeah, <laughs> and then it perfectly so, merged together. Yeah, it's um, um, you know, I developed contacts. So because I became interested in the issue, I, I lived in China. I developed contacts. Yeah. I began asking around. I had contacts. I could speak Chinese, so I had yeah. access. Oh, that's perfect. China was still. Um, developing yeah. at that time so people were very happy for me to come and see their um, endeavors to positively deal with people with yeah. mental illness in China so I was really lucky then so I got to see a lot of course nowadays China is developed yeah. and would be probably more um, private yeah, yeah about its achievements in, in what now is um, a sensitive topic. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So it would be more difficult, I suspect now, to research in that area, um, simply because China is well advanced and it can start to reflect. It, it's, it can be um, thought of as a sensitive topic, how you treat people uh, with a mental illness, etc. Yeah. So it probably would be more difficult. But back then, yeah, it was China had just started from zero to start to build up a way of, 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 of um, um, sensitively dealing with um, people with a mental illness. And so um, it was just all pioneering and I was there at the time, so I was able to... Um, Perfect place, time. Yeah, just, just to see language. what people were doing because they weren't, it wasn't a sensitive topic, it was just, you know, this, it was just yeah. a new topic. Yeah. And um, so I was... Again, lucky in that respect. So it's funny when you're talking to you now, putting things all together. Yeah. Sometimes in life, things just come together. Yeah. And I guess the difference is things come together and you either make and take, take the chance and make an opportunity of it, 
or you don't. So I'm sure there's lots of opportunities for everybody out there the same way. It's just a matter of whether you've got to grasp them or not. I'm sure I didn't grasp every opportunity like that yeah. in, in life. But um, I particularly liked language, so I grasped the Chinese language opportunity when I was young that paid off yeah, instead definitely. of following the veterinary path. Yeah. And um, uh, I um, had the opportunity with um, um, being involved in the, in the newly emerging ways of dealing with people with mental illness in China because it was just at, at the very early stage and I could have gone off and continued to research media reports or something, you yeah. know. But yeah. um, I took a chance and, um, uh, and it paid off. And it paid off, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I see a lot of bravery through your story, just seeing an opportunity and just going for it and not, I guess, overthinking it, you know, what if, what if. Because you could have left, you could have lived such like a secure, safe life down the veterinary road. That's uh, right. Or the yellow, the yellow brick road was all planned out and... Yeah, I think you're right there. Yeah, yeah. it's a, just, and it's your life circumstances, you know, if you've got responsibilities to other people, you can't just go yeah. off and, and take, well, you would think twice about risks. Yeah. And so I was just lucky I didn't have any responsibilities. I come from a large family, so there was always someone else to look after parents or whatever um, and I'm not someone to overthink things yeah, yeah. well if you're someone to over, who overthinks things then um, um, yeah you're probably not going to do that doesn't mean you don't have a good life because you follow the secure path it's still good you become a great veterinary scientist you know yeah <laughs> so I think this the, whichever road I chose it would have been great but yeah. um, um, I guess China was a risk at the time because it was so poor at the time, you know? Yeah. This was just at the very beginning it opened up. It was very poor, poor infrastructure. You never know, and it's a communist yeah. dictatorship. So yeah. there was no, back then, who knows what would have happened to China. Yeah. But lucky for me, China maintained a stable growth and now it's a leading world power. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course that's, <laughs> For my profession, for my profession, that's, that's a good excellent. thing. Yeah, because if China was still a small, poor country, yeah, you couldn't really. No, I wouldn't wouldn't have had as much opportunity as I have. So, yeah. it's um. Yeah, I sometimes say to people, I sort of, you back a horse, and yeah. sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. But the Chinese horse has uh, been very successful. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and at the time, like, how did you almost convince your parents? Because. I feel like they would have to almost pay for your university fees and, oh, yeah. you know. Talk, again, you talk about, I keep mentioning luck yeah. and historical <laughs> circumstance. When I went to university, it was the short period, at the time we thought it was normal, yeah. but it was the short period university was free. Oh, that's so good. So again, you young people don't know, yeah. but us older people, there, for, a very, for about a decade or so, yeah. university was free. And no up, no prepaid, no upfront fees. I mean, no post payment, nothing, just yeah. free. So that wasn't an issue. Oh, yeah, because you didn't have to pay for anything. You didn't have to go through like a third party for kind of. <laughs> so yeah. there was no financial issue because the two degrees both were free degrees. Yeah. So a bit indulgent, isn't it? Yeah. So again, nowadays I might have thought twice, hey, because yeah. of the big, big economic burden. Yeah. yeah so just luck. Yeah. Just luck. It was that, that um, 
just before I started university, it was it was up, um, upfront fees, you know, like in America. Yeah. But then when I started, it was after the, the first lab, the Whitlam government, and everything became free. Oh. And it took a while for that for them to change that again back to fee paying. Yeah. But by that time, I'd finished. Yeah, out of here. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Oh, yeah. And PhD, cool. of course, PhD was later, but PhD is always free. To Australian so students, good. yeah, even now. So. Yeah, yeah. So the PhD is no different to now. It was, you know, there's no fees. Yeah. If the undergraduate degree, the second, un the first and second undergraduate degrees were free, yeah, which isn't yeah. the case now. Yeah. So there was no problem with that from parents. I come from a big family, so they didn't focus on I just can do one. Whatever he wants. <laughs> yeah, and I was the youngest, so you oh, know, it's like yeah. a big Chinese family. The yeah. youngest can just do whatever they want because it's the older ones that have the responsibility of being filial, etc. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they weren't happy that I changed from <laughs> the secure veterinary science. Yeah, four years. Like... And at the time, like I said, China was just a poor, develop, very developing, yeah. um, communist country, yeah. and um, but. Um, by the time my PH, I was doing my PhD, it was quite evident how successful China had become and how successful I'd become through China. Oh. So that was only at the very beginning they were a bit worried, but now, well, afterwards, they um, realised I'd backed the right horse. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And a hypothetical question. So I heard that you said for your first trip you went with a friend, and I feel like when you do it, with someone else and when you like you like guys later studied Chinese together for a short period like that definitely would give you a lot of courage and someone to sort of connect with say you were just by yourself would you I guess suppose have the guts to just go to China and then go study that language um, back then would I have gone by myself it's hard to say it's very hard to say. I feel like your parents would be even more worried for you. Yeah, it's very hard. I actually mm. don't know if I... Because I did travel to other countries when I was younger by myself. Oh, okay. But when I went to China, I was with someone else. And I think it gets... these Any other country at the time you travelled to, there was always English to use somehow. Yeah. But in China, there wasn't. So I could have had... I really don't know. I, I may have, like I visited other countries at the time by myself, might have done it, but it would have been hard yeah. simply because of no language the first time. Yeah. So if I had gone by myself, it would have been really hard because I would have arrived in a China where no one spoke English yeah. and I'd have to try and work everything else for my, out yeah. for myself instead of having a friend to bounce ideas yeah. off, you know. And if you're lost in the city and you're by yourself, it's really hard. Yeah. No, one speaks in, no one speaks your language. But if you're with a friend, it just makes everything more fun. It, it makes We're it much easier. So it's hard to say. I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much, no, because yeah. it was the language barrier. And then to subsequently study it and change mm. your career path, that would be kind of. Mm. Yeah. But after that first trip, every trip was by myself. Oh, wow. But that's because I had language. Yeah. Because once I had some even basic language, it was easy. Because you could buy food, you could ask where's the hotel, yeah. you know, it's all the simple things, where's the toilet, you know, all those simple yeah. questions. Yeah. So you only need a little bit of language and you're fine by yourself, absolutely. I travelled all over China by myself, at a, at still in my 20s, yeah. just with sort of very early language. 
no problem at all. Oh, that's so good. Um, so the very first time though, without, I think I mentioned that before, didn't I? If you didn't yeah. have lang Chinese language. That's so hard. Yeah, but if you're by yourself, it's, a, it's, it's scary. <laughs> it might be a little bit too hard. And so when you're in China now, like, I don't know, like, because you have really good command of Chinese. So do people always treat you like a Chinese person or are you still treated as a foreigner? Or, and how has it changed from first arriving? Because you said they really sort of welcomed you. And then... Yeah, so modern China now, it's, there's, there's nothing novel about being a foreigner in China. Yeah. So there's nothing novel. You know, you're not treated like this novel. You know, people would literally crowd around you. Yeah like not just one or two, but crowds of people <laughs> would crowd around you and just stare at you. <laughs> because they'd never seen a foreigner before. This yeah. is in the early 80s. Yeah. And they'd touch you all the time too. Yeah, yeah, the hair. Yeah, right. so they'd touch us all the time and, yeah. and, and crowd around and look at us. So lucky we didn't care. If you were someone who didn't like that, yeah. you'd, be, you'd find it hard. So of course that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. I don't fool. For good or for bad, that doesn't happen anymore. Um, yeah, and so what was your question? Um, the second part was, yeah, no, all good. About like being treated more as a foreigner. Or yeah, but you're still treated as a foreigner, yeah. Yeah, despite the good command of... Yeah, so it's... No matter how good your Chinese is, yeah, you're still treated as a foreigner. Because mm. you can talk on the phone and they think you're Chinese. Yeah. But as soon as you turn up and they see your face, they'll yeah. treat you differently. That's just the way of the world. So I don't see that as good or bad. That's just yeah, the way it enough. is. So yeah, I would never, I've never dreamed of wanting to be... Chinese-Chinese. <laughs> well, for the Chinese, I never expected Chinese people to treat me like they treat their compatriots, yeah. 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 So um, probably to my benefit because they tend to, Ch Chinese still treat foreigners better. Yeah, they do. Then they do their own compatriots, so yeah. in some ways, like that. But that doesn't mean it's um, it's always smooth sailing when you speak the language, because sometimes when you're doing transactions, because you speak the language, they um, um, try to swindle you less. <laughs> no, no. I mean, they you can if if you didn't speak the language and you're dealing, then they give you an extra. A little bit of extra space, the Chinese, the, the, just from a cultural value, you might try and um, give that person a little bit extra space, but once you're speaking the language, they're just as... Yeah, just, it's uh, very smooth. And very smooth. Yeah, yeah, but also very... That's when you do become equal, when transactions and things. Oh, so so yeah. they'll play hardball with you yeah. once you speak the language. Negotiate the price. Mm -hmm. um, so... But I'd, I don't, I'd be surprised if you could get to the position where you can um, yeah, be, treated as be treated fully as, as, just as, a, as a fellow compatriot in the mainland Chinese context, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. And then I guess what about like, so you've done your PhD and mm. then how did you decide whether or not to like, I guess, teach or like go to industry because I know that you stayed within and just became a lecturer for several like until now, essentially? Yeah, again, it's opportunities, isn't it? What presents at the time. Oh. <laughs> and when I finished my PhD, there was an opportunity to work here, yeah. and I applied and I was successful. Oh. So, yeah, if not, I would have applied to industry, and oh. I might have been 
picked up somewhere. I mean, yeah. might not, I don't know. So in that case, there's just simple opportunity, you know, uh, luck that yeah. when I finished my PhD, there's a position vacant and I had all the appropriate skills for that position. And so I was employed mm. and I just didn't look back, yeah, um, on the academic path. Yeah, that's so but, but I would have just as, at the time, I would have just as happily gone, well, if I'd gone into industry, I was, would have been very happy to go and work in China. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah. So that's, that's the negative is I never had that opportunity to go and live and work in China, in industry, whatever, yeah. in some sort of, um, even if it was with, um, not industry, but with government, you know, in um, diplomacy or in, um, yeah. in the embassy or something. That would have been fascinating. But, um, you know, we can't have everything in life, so the academic path has also given me lots of pluses, you know. That's kind of cool because, yeah, sometimes, I don't know, I think there are some sort of people that, like, they see an opportunity and they just go down that path. And there are also others where, like, they are so set on, like, this path. And even though it's so inconvenient, they will drill through the obstacles yeah. to get there. Yeah, yeah, no, my story's not that at all. <laughs> it's just the opportunity was there, so I took it. Mm. Yeah. I, yeah, I didn't have my eyes set on the academic path, no. Yeah, but that's kind of good that you were open-minded enough it, that you could see the opportunity. Mm, right? was, and it's worked out good. I th you know, my grassroots connections yeah. in China would have been more problematic had I been in government diplomacy oh, and such. Oh, that is actually a very good point. In, on reflection, yeah. Yeah. It would have been great working in the embassy in China, whatever. Yeah. But... Um, that would have been fun, so there would have a lot of pluses come out of that. Yeah. But what I wouldn't have been able to enjoy is the continue, which I continue to have now, yeah. that ability to have grassroots connections because there's nothing political about what I do. I'm not yeah. connected with the Australian government, so yeah. I'm not ever considered a, a problematic person yeah. by the the Chinese authorities. While possibly, if you work in the embassy, you might be considered slightly yeah. problematic. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, so how has teaching been for you, you know, has like, you know, maybe some pluses, some minuses of teaching? Does it get like repetitive, like I imagine year in, like it's, it's sort of the same-ish group of students, different names, but there's certain like personalities that kind of miss group you to it. Um, teach, yeah, I think, no, it's never repetitive or boring, oh, okay. certainly not, and yet it, you might think it might be, especially yeah. When you when you stick with the same courses, you know. Yeah. But I haven't always. I used to teach um, Chinese to students who were learning Chinese. Yeah. And I've taught um, like Chinese literature and yeah. and and other areas outside my expertise, but still able to teach it. Yeah. Um, but um, I have to say, what I most like teaching is now what I teach now, which is translation. And so that's what I stick with now. And yes, I'm teaching uh, the same content to different cohorts yeah. every semester. Because yeah. there's just so many, such high enrollments nowadays and interest yeah. in it. Yeah. Um, but no, it's always fascinating. The, um, you know, just the story, you, you don't, the student cohort is, of course it's a cohort, it's a group, but it's made up of individuals and you never get the same type of person every time mm. 
so no one's ever asked me to be have an <laughs> internet interview. So it's, seize an opportunity. Here so we are. it's like that. There's always a handful of students, even though like in our no in, in the other course, the course you didn't take, there's 370 students. Oh, that's so, alright. Yeah, but those I don't get to engage with 370 of them. Yeah. But, you know, you, there's always, obviously, within 370, a handful, even, who have these really interesting life experiences that you learn about through teaching them. Ah, yeah, that's interesting. Well, they do interesting things, like you're doing now. <laughs> so that keeps your motivation. The content's really good. Um, um, even though you're reteaching content that you might have taught before, there's always new things that come up each time that you didn't notice before that a student will draw your attention to within the same content. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah, it's certainly never something you never get um, um, bored with. But I think the, it's energy, you need energy in the classroom. Yeah. So it's certainly much easier to do when you're younger, ironically, <laughs> when you know less. It, even though you know less, you have more energy, and certainly it was. It's a lot easier. Well, in in getting older now, it's isn't it? You never fret about not having an answer to a question in oh, class. That's a good yeah, thing. Because yeah. you, you feel you know everything, and you actually do have a lot of knowledge up yeah. there. So there's no longer the nerves of you know. Yeah, oh, what if the student asked me that question? <laughs> Gee, you never think. So that's the good plus. Yeah. The, the the negative though is the energy, you get tired. Mm. Yeah. Even though you know more, there's less pressure that side, you just physically get tired teaching. Well, when I was younger, there was, I could teach hours, you know, hours and hours and hours, up to 15 hours a week and never get tired. And, um, but at that time, you really had to do a lot of prep because, oh, you know, yeah. you obviously just didn't know as much about Chinese language, yeah. having studied it for 10 years as you do when you've been speaking it for 40 years. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a preference? Like, I feel like I would, yeah, when I get older, I'd probably maybe transition into a teaching role. And then, like, but that being said, you also said that the energy and would you, like, if someone were to, you know, I guess, shove a teaching block into their life, do you think that it would be better to do it earlier or at the end, I guess? Yeah, well, it's a trade-off, isn't it? All I can say it was I could teach long hours. Yeah when I was young yeah. um, and I can't now yeah. even though it's very easy for me to, to yeah. actually convey the content and and I and I'm very familiar with everything well 90% of what's going on in language I'm yeah. with Chinese I can pretty well yeah. with a with a student new to the yeah new, <laughs> new to Chinese or to translation I can pretty well give them a, a reasonable a, 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 a reasonable answer pretty without any problem. Um, yeah, it's just the it's just energy levels. While research is um, um, much gets much easier because in switching from teaching to research, that's our other responsibility, like writing books, etc. Oh, you have to have yeah, publish. at the beginning, you really don't know. Yeah. Um, obviously, you don't know as much. And you and you have to um, you have to write these documents <laughs> still that are expert documents. So there's a lot of pressure. Yeah. 
lot of pressure with research at, when you're young. When oh. you don't... don't especially fresh you, out of... Yeah, I mean, you know more than most people in society, yeah. but not in respect to your academic community. So there's a lot of pressure. Well, now writing a book of this is, is, for me, very easy. Because oh, that's so cool. It's just you have, simply because you're old, you've got 40 years, 50 yeah. years of knowledge on this topic. You've followed this little topic for all that yeah. time. So you really are confident on, on, on what's, um, what's going on and who's written what and, and what needs to be written about. So research becomes um, much easier over time. Well, teaching never does because of the switches, like I said, from yeah. lots of energy, which is easy when you're young, although lots of stress because you don't know much, which is yeah. when you're young, to lack of energy when you're older, which is a negative, but yeah. um, knowing so much, which is a positive. So there you go. Yeah. Um, Maybe if you're an energetic person, <laughs> more energetic than me when you're in your 50s and 60s, then definitely teach because it's, it's, um, it's really good to be so confident in making claims to young people yeah. that you, you that being fully confident in what you're sharing with them. Yeah. Well, of course, in your 20s, yeah. you can be giving, sharing them information. Which, and it, you, you have less confidence, might have less confidence in what you're saying yeah. because it's, it's um, um, you simply don't have the experience, yeah. yeah. I'm surprised you didn't maybe consider, I guess, teaching primary school, high school, like, that would, I guess, as a young person, that would be, you know, a lot easier and, but yeah. I guess... Yeah, and there's a need too with Chinese. There still is yeah, with Chinese. Does anyone like out there want to be a Chinese <laughs> language teacher? They're still continuing um, demand for Chinese language teachers in the primary and secondary system. Yeah. So it's interesting, isn't it? It's never really been um, saturated, yeah. Chinese language teachers. Um, I'm sure I would have gone there if there was an opportunity. If there'd been an opportunity, yeah, in the schools, because my research never gave me much contact with high schools and, yeah. and primary schools. Yeah. So my research always took me towards Chinese society, you know? Uh, yeah. You know, Chinese society, it be it in Australia, mm. Chinese communities in Australia or in China, it never took me to the, the learning community. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. You know, yeah. which you see, they're, they're quite different That's domains. That's kind of interesting that they didn't really, I guess, interact. Mm. See, yeah. some people in Chinese, some Chinese academics get drawn towards the learning of the yeah, language, yeah, so yeah. they get attracted to the school yeah, sector because that's yeah, where the, yeah. so much learning takes place. But I was interested in this phenomenon of how pe Chinese communities deal with people with a mental illness, which obviously didn't, which took, which all the all, always drew me to Chinese communities, mm. yeah. be, oh, they, be they the small ones like in Sunnybank in yeah, Australia, yeah. or the huge ones in mainland China. Yeah. Yeah and Taiwan and Hong Kong and Singapore, yeah. yeah. So I think that's why I didn't get attracted to the school sector. Yeah, mm. yeah that's interesting. Because otherwise, yeah, you, it would be very easy to develop contacts in the school sector yeah. and then, of course, um, maintain that. Yeah. But something I never did, yeah. All my contacts have been with people in Chinese communities as, yeah. who have nothing to do with 
teaching the language, yeah. And you primarily just taught um, bachelor students, is that right? Yeah, I've, I can't think, uh, I did brief, very briefly um, taught research methods to oh. postgraduates. But fundamentally, if we're talking at Chinese language, I've only ever taught undergraduate. Yeah. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've supervised PhD students. Yeah. Who, but you don't actually teach a PhD student. You yeah. assist them as they write yeah. their doctorate. Oh. But um, I've only ever taught classroom-based undergraduate. Well, University of Queensland has a full postgraduate program. Yeah in Chinese translation, yeah, mm. yeah, I which I haven't taught. Ah, mm. oh, yeah, that's kind of cool. Mm. And have you noticed, I guess, any big difference in terms of learning style between Chinese students and um, ABC students? I found it very interesting that, I love how at this discussion board you can post anonymously, right, your questions, whereas for other classes I don't necessarily have that option. So oh. I wondered if that was because Chinese students might be more, I guess, shy? Yeah, it's. You know, it's always, you should, <laughs> the, the irony is we should always think of communities as diverse experiences, <laughs> right? And we shouldn't stereotype, right? Ah, uh, yes, yes, so, that's true. Let's just put it that way. I'm just one little experience of teaching yeah. a group of students. Normally, I, probably about 500 Chinese, ethnic Chinese students, mostly yeah. from mainland China, every semester. So it's a, probably a thousand a year I have come into contact with oh. over the last 20 years. Mm. So that's a lot, but it's just from one person. Yeah. And my experience with those students yeah. is it's a very clear difference between teaching this current cohort yeah. compared to before when I only taught, um, when I taught Chinese to, to Australian kids who wanted yeah. to learn Chinese. So it's a very different experience, and all I've, the things I'm going to say now are all stereotypes that people <laughs> think of Chinese students, and I apologise for that. Yeah. But that's just what's happened in my experiences. That simply they um, very reluctant to yeah. um, um, to 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 reveal their thoughts or share their work with fellow classmates. Oh, mm. that's an interesting one. Yeah, hence the anonymity. Anon yeah. <laughs> and um, the other thing is, is um, um, very noticeably um, respectful is probably, oh. uh, might be too exaggerating, yeah, but I get you. of the teacher. There's a clear and, power distance. Yeah, so if you really wanted to, um, if you want to think it in that way, it's, it's not necessarily a good thing. Yeah. So, um, good thing for me, maybe, but yeah, it's not, not a good thing up. in reality. <laughs> is that, yes, the, 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 clearly the authority, the teacher's given authority. Yeah. Real, and at some time, often unquestionable authority, ah. yeah, compared to teaching um, students who are born in Australia. So that continues. Um, might be just the, the demographic, the yeah the demographic because like I said ninety percent of the students now from mainland China mm. doing the translation oh yeah so um, so that's why mine is actually just a limited little sample yeah, because international... a large number of students but there's certain yeah. 
they're, they're from mainland China and they're obviously from a certain socio-economic class yeah. in mainland China yeah. and they've had a certain experience growing up in mainland China and, and that translates to when they come to me as them being those things. But certainly very, very curious but, um, 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 and very happy to have one-to-one -one contact with the yeah. teacher. Yeah, so I bet you had a lot of consults. Yeah, and yeah. that the group experience is really problematic. Yeah. Group work, yeah. all that sort of stuff is, is quite difficult to get going in the classroom and often there's a bit of resistance to it yeah, yeah that's quite interesting um, but eager to learn happy to listen followed following directions yeah. um, um, the the negative for me is not so willing to challenge you know oh because yeah. translation it's not a, a direct science yeah. and and, and yeah i can give my opinion but you know, I can change my opinion based on better feet, better ideas from others. I'm not yeah. the font of, of, of <laughs> perfection. Of perfection, and that's one thing I actually teaching these um, Australian kids because you know there are a couple in our yeah. classes, yeah. yeah, that you get from them very distinctly uh, and in a positive way, where I can take on their ideas for the yeah. future. You know, yeah. Oh, I never thought of it that way. That's a great yeah. idea to think of it. Yeah, that. So. I very rarely get to say that statement. Oh, that's a great idea. I never thought of thinking it like that. Mm. Yeah. Which is a good thing for me. Mm. See, there's less of that in the, with the, with the mainland Chinese cohort who I predominantly teach. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's but, a, that, yeah. but that's now, and that, I'm sure that'll change over, yeah, over right. years. Mm. You might have thought it would have changed already, but in yeah. my experience, it hasn't. Yeah. yeah. Mm. You know, that, that sort of more. Um, yeah, and the critical, you know, the more critical thinking and uh, yeah, and, challenging and lack of um, openness to share opinion yeah. without losing face, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. So if we really just deconstruct it socially, the uh, the concept of face appears because yeah. I haven't done any real research to define it, but superficially, I'd say the concept of face is real quite strong in the classroom yeah. still. Even though being born here and stuff, I still, I still, like, I definitely prefer the one-to-one -one consults, even though... Oh, okay, so there's still so, a, a, which, so, which yeah. we might be able to track back to face. Yeah, yeah, it could be the Chinese background or, mm. yeah, but yeah, I can definitely, definitely relate. Definitely not clear-cut if you're born here or born in China. Yeah, yeah, and then just like the final two questions, I guess. So the first one was, um, do you have any tips for Chinese language learners? Chinese language learners like myself, uh, yeah. like from, from zero beginner. Yeah, and I guess um, from people who have some kind of uh, like heritage people. Yeah. Yeah, it could be like me. Um, I'm sort of caught between saying. It's really good that you have a little bit of structure to your learning, but I don't think you, it's essential. So, my first point would be, it's not essential, but it's probably better if you have some structure for your learning. And what I mean by that, as you at least go to some sort of course somewhere, uh, yeah. you know, be it at school or at university or at TAFE or whatever, or on the internet, that teaches you the language. Just at least, even for a, 
a semester or two semesters. So you get that sense of how you acquire a language. Um, you might not learn so much, your language might not um, advance significantly by doing that course, but it, it gives you a, a sense of how you sort of approach um, um, language acquisition, learning a language. Thereafter, I think it's, it's really actually quite easy. You just, just immerse yourself in everything Chinese language, which is very much easier to do nowadays than it was back in the early 80s. There was yeah. no internet then. Yeah, yeah. So the only way I could do that was to go to China. Yeah. Well now, <laughs> once, <a year. laughs> once you get an idea of how, what the important things are about learning yeah. a langu any language, I guess, in this case Chinese, once you get a sense of that through doing a, a, a brief course or reading a textbook or something, that sort of gives you that structure. Then all you need to do is is immerse yourself in Chinese language, and you'll pick up the language and the and the structures of the language that are relevant to the things you're interested in life. So that you'll be re reusing them all the time. Um, and so, how do you immerse yourself? It's very easy. You can watch. <laughs> it's just an YouTube, endless podcast. Endless opportunities nowadays. It's so easy to because I still do it. You know, I sit at home, I watch the Chinese news. Yeah. yeah. On the, so everything's on the internet. I watch yeah. the Chinese news. Then I watch a Chinese um, um, soap opera from Taiwan, you know? Yeah. And then oh, I'll watch one good. from mainland China, and, or I might watch a movie from mainland China, you know? And it won't be any movie, you know, now the movies you can select by themes and yeah, such on these various websites um, that. Um, um, these various platforms that have lots of all free movies yeah, and things. Free. So, <laughs> so it's, I think Ch the good thing about Chinese is that once you have those very basics, which you might pick up through a textbook or a, yeah. a short course, that that's about all you need. The rest is just learning, um, learning the way to talk about things. Yeah. And I think the easy way to do that is just immersion through things you're interested in, like the movies you're interested in. Yeah. Or watching, if you're a sports fan, you watch the Chinese sports reports, you know, or yeah. you know, whatever. Again, just whatever you're interested in. I mean, obviously, my interest is in mental illness. So anything, <laughs> anything I see, any movies like we see here, these um, movies, yeah. that anything that's on, um, got to do with mental illness, then I'll watch it, you know, and you pick up the vocabulary yeah. from it. That, that. Um, for you is important and then you reuse it with other people and so it becomes stuck yeah. in there. And the vocabulary about things you're not that interested in, you know, say sport, yeah, <laughs> yeah you don't learn it because you're not following it. Yeah. But if ever you need to be, you've got, you can just ask someone, you know, if you happen to be with a friend and you're watching a sports, oh, what do you, how do you s describe that in Chinese? Yeah. You know? yeah. So I think the main thing is to, to develop a, a really rich and strong vocabulary in the things that you're interested in by immersion. Um, the most simplest way is through the internet, which has everything nowadays. Yeah. But of course, like me, you can go and live in China. It's <laughs> a really good way to do it too. And just, you, when you're living there, you obviously you just hang out with people who do things you like doing. So you pick up the vocabulary of, again, things you like doing. Yeah, that's cool. I mm. really like how you sort of structured it. Almost like a pyramid first, setting a solid base and then the immersion. But I almost feel like until you have like I guess a basic grasp of the knowledge then it becomes fun but the first 
beginning is actually not that fun when the learning curve is so steep and when you're like, you know, trying to nitpick each single character, each single word. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, it is fun. hard. Yeah. That's probably why it's very good to do it when you're young. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Because yeah. you've got the motivation. Yeah, yeah. And the curiosity almost as well. Yeah. I think if you leave it too late in life, you try start learning it in your late 30s or 40s, you think, yeah. oh, this is all too much yeah. for me in my life. I'll go off and try <laughs> other things. But yeah. the good news for Chinese, if you're interested in Chinese out there and you're young, it's, it, it's the, the, that, that beginning bit, yeah. which might be sort of difficult and maybe tedious for some of you. Yeah. It's only for a short period of time and then you can just go and have all the fun you want because you're just immersing yourself in a language that doesn't have a really problematic grammar. So you just oh, need to build up cool. the ways, different ways to talk about things. In other words, uh, basically vocabulary. While English, sadly, <laughs> if you were, happen to be a Chinese person and you're wanting to learn English, is that, um, that, that there's no simple sort of circumscribed. No, it's just endless and even after 20, 30 years, yeah. you're still learning new grammar. Which is something that doesn't happen with Chinese, yeah. Yeah, getting stuck on the technical aspects. Mm, mm. Yeah, and then the last part, I just wanted to, you know, you can show off a bit of your Chinese speaking <laughs> skills. Nah,厉害啊。他的中文比我好很多。那要不你就说一下里面这个书写了什么东西。啊，好的，这本书就是我最近出版的一本书啊。当然是，呃，学术方面的跟我的这个。呃，我工作方面的就是我的专业就是精神病方面的，讲的是这方面的呢。这本书讲的是精神病哪一方面的，就是新闻报道。所以是比较一下，呃，中国就是中国大陆的香港啊，还有台湾的呃的媒体啊
是分析有什么不一样的呢？这个是为什么不一样的呢？嗯，可以看看呃他们的历史背景，比如说香港的以前是英国殖民地啊，所以这个英国殖民地的时候，香港的是英国殖民地的时候，呃，他们的医疗体系等等的，这是受到英国的这方面的呃呃影响啊，包括怎么呃。治疗怎么看待患精神病的一样的，嗯，呃，所以这个历史背景还是现在还是影响香港人怎么看待患精神病的等等，有时候是像我们的西方的媒体的报道精神病方面的一样的，嗯，西方。西方的媒体报道精神病方面的是什么特点的是很多是，呃，很很多的报道，就是把患精神病的是描述成，就是说他们是是有对社会是威胁呢。哦，对对，因为他们做的是，我我们看他们应该有一点的。怕有一点怕是偏见方面的，对，所以香港的我做分析呢，就是发现的香港的也有这个媒体方面的也有一点一点的那样的比较 sensationalize， 就是比较恐怖的，对，恐惧的，对，扩大这个精神病患的是对社会一个威胁呢。台湾呢，呃，是不一样，台湾的历史不一样，你你知道有呃。呃，日本的的统治，有有一段时间是日本殖民地，还有最近是民主化的，然后这个第二个世界大战以后，台湾也是独裁啊，跟中国大陆一样，但是九十年代以后是民主化的，所以他们有自己的呃呃呃呃呃特点的报道，精、呃、看待精神病还有报道精神病方面的呢。也可以，有时候是反应，嗯，他们的历史呢，这个历我刚刚讲的历史背景，有一部分是台湾的最近的社会一个特别的呃一个特色，就是包容，包容 tolerance 包容，所以呃香港没有这个概念，是社会的基本上不是特别重视。包容这方面，就是台湾最近是特别的重视的包容，所以这可能包容是包括包容患精神病的那样的人。中国大陆呢？中国大陆就是中国大陆，对不对？<笑>是一个他们还有媒体是由中共控制的，对，嗯、对，对，所以媒体说的就是政府的说的，嗯，对，所以他们说的，他们想报道的，他们是。想讲的是，呃，呃，政府的国家跟政府的对精神病患方面的成就，嗯，哦、oh, ，他们做的什么成就，他们做的这么好的，对，嗯，很多是讲是是是讲了，呃呃，他们呃国内的。对精神病患的治疗方面的等等的是很先进的，就是跟西方国家一样的先先进的了。嗯，所以
很多是讲的这方面的医疗成就等等的，所以总的来说可以说，呃，中国大陆的媒体呃强调的是这个呃医疗方面的的成就等等的，呃，香港的媒体比较强调的是犯罪，嗯，嗯这个恐惧那样的，嗯，是很有一点的。嗯，遗憾，对不对？对。台湾的呢，就是不是非常重视，但是有一点的，可以说是他们是争取，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，争取反应或表现他们嗯、呃、台湾社会的包容这方面的，嗯。包括精神病患在内的，嗯，嗯，嗯很不错，很不错，不错，哇，谢谢你、啊。所以如果有兴趣，记得买支持一下 Guy Ramsey。也可以去问问图书馆，<笑>这个大学的图书馆看一看，是比较也比较便宜，是不要钱的，对,对不对？对，对啊、对很不错，很不错。对对。为那些学生着想。<笑>好 ，That's all we have today. So, um, thank you so much, Guy. On the show, and yeah, catch up another time. No, I'm happy to talk with you. It's very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, see you next time. Bye. Bye.